Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again to Luke and the first chapter here in verse 51, Luke 1 and verse 51. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent away sent empty away. Well, here at the close of this year, 2023, perhaps there is more reflection than usual upon where we stand in the great theme of history. We know, of course, that a single lifetime is described in the Bible as just like a blade of grass or a flower of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow, we are like a vapor that is soon gone. And yet, life and the purposes of the whole human race do not begin and end with an individual. We are brought into a grand story a grand narrative whose author is God, the governor of all history. By his mighty providence, is doing something. He is shaping all the events that will ever unfold to culminate in the great and glorious display of his magnificent glory. And... For the unbeliever, they need to make some sort of sense of the world in which they live. And so the mind of unbelief cobbles together some sort of scheme or narrative or worldview to make sense of their surroundings. But fashioned as it is upon unbelief and resistance to the great creator and lord of history, it will never arrive at any sound, lasting truth. It is ultimately an illusion. And scary though it may sound, even Christians can come to think in this way, thinking of history and their role in it, not according to the standard of God's word, but the standard of unbelieving philosophies. We imbibe it every day through the media, through the voices of our culture, through education and so forth. And so it is that one of the glorious inheritance um, and blessings of the Christian life is having a definite grounding to your own understanding of history. And part of the key difference, of course, is recognizing that this is not some random world left to its own devices. No, but God is intimately, intimately involved in every aspect of human life, from the smallest detail to the greatest of events. There is not one stray atom, nor is the shaping and the rising and falling of entire nations left to themselves. No, God is the Lord, the Lord of history. And for 
his children, for his people, he would have them to know this. He would have them to build their lives upon it. And I mention this, for our text certainly discloses something of the truth of the scripture in this respect. Mary indeed is led by the Spirit upon her reflection of the great purposes of God in the coming of Christ Jesus, her Son and her Savior, into the world. And in these verses, you see how she reflects upon God's activity in history. Children, did you notice what is said there in verse 51? He hath showed strength with his arm. Maybe you think about the strongest person you know, and maybe you look at their arm. It looks a lot bigger than your arm, doesn't it? And maybe you would think, wow, an arm like that, that'd be able to lift something heavy. Or that would be very useful in defending in a case where you were attacked by an enemy or something like that. Well, the right arm of God doesn't refer to a physical arm. God is spirit. He has no body parts or anything like that. But here it refers to the awesome displays of his power in history, in events, in the lives of his people. The Lord's servant Moses let forth a glorious song upon the deliverance of the people of Israel through their baptism in the Red Sea. And Moses in Exodus 15 sings forth this praise in Exodus 15 verses 6 and 7. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy, and in the greatness of thine excellency thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath and consumed them as stubble. Again in verse 12 and 13, thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. There you see in the exodus or the liberty of the people of God out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, God's powerful working to destroy the enemy and to redeem the godly. Well, that is set forth as his mighty arm, his mighty hand, his working there and displaying his power. And so also the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was spoken through the prophets as a working of God's mighty arm. Isaiah 40, verse 10, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Isaiah 53, in verse 1, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken also by Mary here. 
as the right arm of the Lord Christ in his person and work in his glorious new covenant in his gospel of salvation. God is at work to redeem his people and to destroy his enemies. And so it is, if you were to write over this whole section of Mary's words, especially verses 51 to 53, you could call it the great reversal. The great reversal. God is reversing the patterns of history that were characterized by the reign of Satan over this creation. And in the coming of Christ Jesus, a new pattern, a new principle, a new force, a new power is displayed whereby God has intervened for the salvation of his people and the destruction of the ungodly. The great reversal of the Lord's help. Let's consider two aspects of it. First, God's judgment, and second, God's blessing. God's judgment and God's blessing in the great reversal. Indeed, there is much in these words that resonates with that particular episode of God working. You see, children, the Jewish people, they would not have expected something like this to happen. A poor young woman who is engaged to a carpenter, how could a woman like this give birth to the Messiah? You see, they expected the Messiah to show up in a way that would bring about a merely earthly kingdom that would exalt them to a position of power where they could crush their enemies, the enemies of the Jewish people. And so they expected a Messiah who would come in great splendor and great power that would really make everyone say, wow, that is impressive. Not so. He comes in humility to this poor uh, woman, Mary. And so much of that takes place here in her words, describing that pattern, how it is that the great number of the Jewish people, particularly their leaders, will be brought low, even as the believers among them will be raised up. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first, as Jesus speaks quite often. Christ, in his coming, he overturns expectations. He overturns the set patterns and norms of, of power structures under the forces of sin. You see, where a new principle is at work, godliness and the reign of God in Christ Jesus must reign where unbelief and lawlessness and corruption once abounded. So there must be change. There must be reversal in God. He will not operate according to the expectations of the unbelieving world. And so look again here at verse 51. He has showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent away empty. 
There are themes of judgment here. Terrifying judgment. God is judge of all the earth, and the judge of all the earth will do right, and judgment falls upon particular individuals. God is at work in history to judge his enemies. God judges his enemies here and now in their own lifetimes. And God also judges at the end of history. Put them all together, the events of history and the final event of history. And it all culminates in this, the utter destruction of all enemies of God. Where today people laugh at the concept of judgment where today people would despise the thought that God is on his throne as their judge. There is coming the day, whether soon or at the end of history, where they will be faced with the reality that they exist as vessels of destruction. They are brought low by God's judgment. Now, in the first place, under this portion of these verses, I would speak in particular about the persons, the persons that are judged here. I think it's profitable that we would know that. Don't you want to know the kind of people who will be judged of God? They're described here, are they not? They are set forth that we would know who they are. And the first description of them is that they are proud Proud. It says there, he hath scattered the proud. It's a description of the enemies of God that also that woman Hannah spoke about in our scripture reading. You know the story of Hannah, don't you, children? She was a woman who really desired to have children, but the Lord had shut her womb until she prayed unto God, and God opened her womb. And in thanksgiving, she spoke about how the Lord had brought her up out of that state of desperation and sorrow. And she said in, Luke, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Very good description of the proud. You see, a proud man or a proud woman, a proud boy or a proud girl, how might we describe them? They are someone who will not submit to their role before God. What is their role? What is their position? They are a creator, a creation, I should say, under the rule of the Creator. They are a servant under their Lord. And more than that, they are a sinner in relation to a judge. But for the proud person, this does not phase them, it does not break them, it does not make them low and humble. No, but it, it makes them high on their high horse and they think themselves to be something. They despise the commandments of God, for they would govern their lives according to their own preferences. They despise the promises of mercy in the gospel because they have no need for salvation. They despise the word of God, for 
They esteem their own wisdom to be greater than the wisdom of God. Hannah said, by him actions are weighed. But for the proud person, they weigh all their actions, all that they are, by their own wisdom. And so, being self-centered and self-focused, they despise others. And they esteem themselves to be better than others. And they find different strategies for concealing this. Basically, to be a proud person is to be utterly uh, casting off the reign of God upon your life and to think and act according to your own wisdom. Here it is, and so we would have to examine ourselves by this, would we not? Every one of us. How has pride found way into our lives? Are we not steeped in a very society drenched in pride? What does the rainbow symbolize? Yes, perversion, of course. Yes, lawlessness, of course. Yes, blasphemy, but it's called a pride movement, a pride parade. Why? Because that is exactly what is going on there with the homosexual movement. Not surrendering to the will of God, but saying we ourselves are our own gods. But terrible to contemplate even those who would have no time for the rainbow flag and what it symbolizes. They can still find other aspects of pride. How is it with you when it comes to the word of God? Do you tremble at the word of God? Do you accept the word of God? Do you weigh all your actions by the word of God? Do you find your only hope in Christ Jesus? Do you see that you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God? Should you answer these incorrectly, as indeed the proud person cannot, then there is a very dangerous position for you here. The proud are described, but not only the proud, but also the mighty. The mighty. In verse 52, he hath put down the mighty from their seats. The mighty. And here is an ordinary description for rulers. Rulers, people in positions of power. Now, we don't say, of course, that everyone in a position of power or authority, every king, president, or prime minister, every mayor, or member of parliament, and so forth, that these are all among those who will be judged of God. But we do understand that that is indeed the pattern for much of history. That where you have ungodliness abounding and the grace of the gospel being restrained and hindered, where you find unbelief and pride reigning, there you find that those in positions of power are sworn enemies of God and they misuse their power in order to elevate themselves. Whereas Roman 13 would speak of the powers or the rulers of this world as servants of God, as even God's deacons, literally, as those who must rule according to the pattern of God as their master. Yet these would elevate themselves in the role of God. Sorry to say that this is surely the regular pattern of the nation in which we live. We would consider 
For example, our Prime Minister, a man who revels in pride and arrogancy, hatred of God and his word. We would consider our Premier, a man who thinks nothing of persecuting pastors under health regulations that limit the preaching and worship of God and would persecute ministers of the gospel for keeping their churches open. We would think of even uh, people who ostensibly call themselves conservatives. We think of the leader of the official opposition federally here in Canada and a man who, who will boast about having family members who are homosexuals, who elevate homosexuals within his cabinet, who indeed will not speak out against ungodly laws that hinder the preaching of the gospel on issues of sexuality and so forth. And we would trace such things, congregation, not merely to these individuals, but to the nation that they represent, where God would raise up such ungodly enemies of himself to reign over a people, it is because the people would have it so. So in particular, in our case, were it the case that you had rulers who would speak plainly about the crown rights of Christ Jesus, can we imagine what would happen? Surely there would be a great outcry. How can anyone say that we would actually obey the Bible in this country? How could anyone say that Christ is supreme? We are a secular, a progressive, a modern society. Every viewpoint must be respected. Christ Jesus, he is but one voice among many, if that. God, well, he can speak to such things as only concern private opinion and private belief and private practices and private customs, but his public authority, we will have not have that over our nation. This is the sentiment among not only secular Canadians, but sorry to say, even among many in the church, where it was once the case that those who claimed to believe in the Bible would speak definitively of their need to uphold the Sabbath over the law of the land, that the Sabbath should not be desecrated or dishonored through businesses staying open unnecessarily or through, through people working unnecessarily on the Sabbath, where before this was held as granted by all, and as more especially Christians, now even finding Christians who will obey the Sabbath in their own families is increasingly uncommon. Oh, would we whine and complain about the ungodly rulers that are placed over us? Well, they are ones that we ourselves have tolerated through our complicity and silence and agreement towards their evil, speaking as the Christian community. But here we see that they are set forth for judgment. No society, of course, no society can trample underfoot the word of God, the laws and commandments of the living judge of history, and long survive. No, indeed, where such light has been expressed to our society, surely there cannot be but judgment and destruction and death. We see it all around us. Can we expect that a society 
can live in such irrational, irreverent hatred of the God of heaven and earth and long survive? Is there a future for such a nation? No. No congregation. There can be no future in resistance towards the living God. He will destroy the mighty. But also, there's this description as well. The rich. The rich. And we notice how they're described in verse 53. The rich he has sent away empty. And the rich, of course, Jesus Christ spoke about many a time, even in his ministry in Luke chapter 6, verse 24. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. I think Dr. Gill has a very good explanation of what this means in the context of Mary's words as well as Christ's words. Listen to what Dr. Gill says. Not the rich in this world's goods, though such who trust in their wealth and boast of their riches or do not make a proper use of them. God in his providence sometimes strips them of all and turns them into the world naked and empty, much less the rich in grace, who are often the poor of the world and who, though they seem to have nothing, yet possess all things and are full. But such who are rich in their opinion and in their own works and trust in their righteousness and despise others, these, as they come full of themselves to the throne of grace, as the Pharisees are sent empty away, end quote. Those who are content with their lot in the world and their standing before God, those who feel that they lack nothing and yet are the most poor of all, these are described as those who are ripe for judgment. Talk to the unbeliever and say, could you not find a place for God in your life? And they would say, what use have I for God? I have my health, I have my home, I have my business, I have this, I have a spouse, I have that. And there's no need for God, they think, until such time as it is all stripped away, until such time as they die and go to judgment and stand naked before a holy God who is a consuming fire. And such is the person who will receive God's judgment. Let me speak in, in a way that would help us to see something of their uh, judgment that they receive, the particular way and means of their being judged. Well, we see that it's described in most vivid uh, poetic language here, first as they're being scattered, as they're being scattered in verse 51. He has showed the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the imagination of their hearts, where indeed the unbeliever would seek to construct some self-esteem for themselves, where they would try to cobble together some standard which they can meet, where they would try to construct some goal for which they can strive, where they would try to build some kind of empire 
For their own liking, God pronounces that it shall all be scattered. All their wisdom, all their folly shall be shown for what it is. And ultimately, it shall all be destroyed. We consider what Hannah spoke of in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces out of heaven. Shall he thunder upon them? The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Oh, it is so. The anointed king, Jesus Christ, shall ultimately and finally be the one who scatters all the so-called wisdom of this world, every nation, every person, every family that does not build upon the solid rock of Christ's word. When the storm, the winds, and the waves come, it shall all come crashing down. Not only scattered, but we also see um, how it is that they will be put down. In verse 52, he hath put down the mighty from their seats. When we look around, then it seems that the mighty and the powerful, the influential, the prestigious, the people of wealth and reputation and standing in our world and nation and even sometimes in the professing church, Sometimes it seems as though they have it all together, and yet God says they will be put down. They will be brought low. He said, similarly in Matthew 15 and verse 13, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. And the third description is uh, their being sent away. In verse 53, the rich he has sent away Empty, being sent away. What can we but think of? But the words of Christ Jesus on that great day of days, where many will say unto him, Lord, Lord, did not we do many mighty works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you curse. Depart from me. Sent away finally unto the wrath and condemnation of hell. So it is, we look at it all, it's a fearful thing, congregation, to contemplate this. Jesus spoke in particular of how these same principles would be carried out among those who heard his preaching in the days of his ministry. He spoke in Luke chapter 10 and verse 15, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. It's especially those, you see, who have more light, who have more opportunity, for whom Christ comes close. That their condemnation and judgment is the greater. Oh, how terrible it would be. There should be one here who is trifling with God, playing games with Christ, toying with his word and with his gospel, not surrendering unto Christ Jesus. How many sermons have you heard this past year, sinner? How many times has Christ lovingly called you to receive life and forgiveness? 
And yet that you should go yet another day and another night in rebellion against him, it is surely something that should make you tremble at the greater condemnation and wrath that awaits all unbelievers. Here we do see how it is that judgment comes upon the unbelievers. But this is not only about God's judgment but also his blessing. This is the other hand about, uh, or the other thing on the other hand that is disclosed here about this great reversal, that even, even as you see the wrath and judgment of God falling upon the unbelieving ones, so also his people are also elevated. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If you'd been there on the uh, coastline of the Red Sea, and you had seen that great and mighty army of Pharaoh approaching, and the people of God, they're trapped between the coming onslaught of his army and the great wall of water, you would have to say, well, all probability this is going to end one way. But where the word of God cannot fall to the ground without it being fulfilled, we knew that it was a certainty that they would be redeemed. That the water itself would rise up and provide their passageway unto liberty. So also it is with the coming of Christ towards his elect people. It secures for them all things necessary for their salvation. Christ Jesus has come to redeem his people. He is called Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. And so it is. This is described vividly and gloriously here. Our his people described, well, they are described as low, as low. It said here in verse 52, he has exalted them that be of low degree. To the eyes of the world, the people of God are a very small thing, an insignificant thing. Oh, here are a few people who yet hold on to the promises of God that yet would obey the Bible. Objects of scorn, objects of persecution often. We think of the people hiding in, in home churches under the occupation of the tyrants of China. We think of those under the spiritual and political bondage of Islam. We see the growing tides of persecution even here in North America. And so it would seem that the devil can snuff out the small smoking flax of the church of God through the exertion of his power. It may seem where we would look at the progress of history it is a dark time for the people of God. And yet, where we see here that it is precisely in the low position of his people that God will be glorified. God is pleased to elevate the things that are despised of the world to positions of prominence. You think of a little person like Daniel, this unassuming person who was brought into captivity there in Babylon, just another servant and slave of the king of Babylon, and all of a sudden he is brought to a position of power over all the land. You think of a Joseph, brought to the very lowest of degrees, made a slave, and then a prisoner, and then elevated to the very height 
of power and influence. You think of a Martin Luther, a single voice crying out for the gospel. And you see how he is raised up of the Lord in order to speak boldly and triumphantly of the cross of Christ and justification by faith alone. You see it time and after time where God is pleased to to cause even babes to utter forth the unsearchable riches of his kingdom and salvation. Is it a consequential thing that a few believers should bind themselves together with their children on the end of a dirt road on the outskirts of the city of London? To those who have not spiritual eyes, it is a small thing. But it is a thing that angels desire to look into, that this is where the Lord is at work. This is where the Lord is working salvation. This is where the Lord is equipping and furnishing the heirs of his kingdom for future, for future usefulness and for future manifestations of his glory. We look at how they are described. They are of low degree, and yet they are exalted. It's just as Hannah had spoken of in her own um, words. In 1 Samuel 2 and verse 8, He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. I love how that describes it. These Simple believers, well, considered as nothing to the world. They are the very pillars that hold up the earth. All of history governs around this, the salvation of God's elect. And when the last one of God's chosen people is brought in to the body of Christ, then the end shall come. We see as well that they are described as the hungry. He hath filled the hungry with good things. Blessed, says Jesus, are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Are you such a one that hungers and thirsts after righteousness? Do you desire the things of Christ? Do you desire to know him? Do you desire to please him? Do you desire to obey him? Do you desire to build your life upon him? Is this your one and earnest desire that you would possess him who is your pearl of great price, the fairest of 10,000, the glorious son of God come in our flesh? Is this the apple of your eye, believer, to have Christ Jesus? And it said in 1 Samuel 2, verse 5, They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry cease, for that the barren have borne seven, and that hath many children is waxed feeble. James says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. James chapter 4 and verse 10. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Yea, all of you be subject to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Would you desire 
to know the blessing of God. And what is set forth here is that you must recognize every trace of pride in yourself, refusal to submit unto the mighty hand of God. And you must recognize it for what it is, treason against the holy king, against the judge and ruler of all history. You must humble yourself and be made low, be made teachable, one who has no help, no strength, and no ability in yourself, and you must cast yourself utterly upon the word of Christ. Would you be exalted up unto heaven, and you must be brought low unto the dust. You must see that Christ is everything, and that you are nothing. But where do your congregation the people of God do find themselves brought low under the hand of God. Their exaltation cannot but be far. Where they find themselves brought teachable under this lesson about the flow of history, they have an undescribable assurance that all things will work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. As you would enter into this new year, may this consciousness and understanding of the Lord of history and how he is working inform every decision and thought of your life. May it please the Lord to bless this word unto his people. Amen.